John, today, John chapter 6. The bulletin tells us we're going to begin in verse 35, and that's what I had planned. Uh, we're going to begin uh, a little bit earlier. We're going to back the reading up to verse 25, uh, even backing up by 10 verses. We're not going to get the whole story, but this gives us a little bit more of the context. Uh, we'll talk about that context as we go along. But as we jump into the story in verse 25, uh, people are seeking for Jesus because they saw a miracle the feeding of the 5,000 earlier in the chapter. And now he's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they've come seeking him. So that's where our reading will pick up in verse 25. We are going to read through verse 51, John chapter 6, verses 25 through 51. You can find that beginning on page 891 of our ESVs. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer as we seek his blessing on our study today. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word, the living word who has come into the world, who has uh, taken on flesh and tabernacled among us. We thank you that he is the one who reveals the Father so that we may know you. We pray that you would help us to know you through your word today, that we might find life in his name by faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 6, beginning to read in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. I realize that John chapter 6 might not be uh, the passage that you expected uh, on Christmas Eve morning. Uh, and I realize that that's uh, something of a gamble. Uh, an older pastor once warned me not to get too inventive with my Christmas sermons. Uh, he told me that, that church people, you know, you, you folks are people of habit. And when you show up on Christmas weekend, you expect something traditional. When you bring your visiting family with you, ex you expect to uh, have them hear something about angels and shepherds and mangers and, and donkeys, I suppose. And, and there's not an angel or a manger anywhere to be found in this passage. Uh, instead, John chapter 6 reads like a religious dispute. It reads like a discussion, a disagreement over prophetic signs and predestination. It seems like the kind of Christmas text that only a Calvinist could love. And it's true, I do love it. But it's also true that John chapter 6, angels or no angels, manger or no manger, John chapter 6 is filled to the brim with the message of Christmas. This passage reveals to us the glory of the Son of God who took on flesh and dwelled among us. It proclaims to us the eternal Savior who was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary who suffered, died, and was buried. This passage reveals to us the God incarnate who came to give us life that can never be lost. This is the message of Christmas. And this is also the message of John chapter 6. So this passage reveals several very traditional truths of Christmas to us. Truths about our Savior. The first is where he came from. The answer to the question of where Jesus came from is scattered throughout the chapter. It shows up seven different times, depending on how you're counting. But it shows up perhaps most clearly at the end in verse 51. Jesus said... I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. So he's telling us, straightforward language, his origin is not like our origin. We might use the language of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We might say that the difference between him and us is the difference between divinity and dust. Corinthians talks about the first man and the second man, talks about the man of earth and the man of heaven, and that's who Jesus is claiming to be in this passage. He is the man of heaven who came down, the God who stooped low, who took on the flesh of his own creation. He is the living bread that came down from heaven. Now, if we had begun our passage 
uh, even earlier than we did. Earlier in John chapter 6, you would have found in verse 4 that this whole discussion about heavenly bread, well, it took place during the season of the Passover. The Passover was the most joyous, uh, hope-filled time of feasting in the Jewish calendar. It was a time that the Israelite people looked back on God's strong deliverance in the past. It's a time that they remembered what Exodus chapter 3 verse 8 says, that God came down to deliver his people out of the hand of the Egyptians. That's what the Exodus was about. That's what the Passover was about. God brought his people out of slavery with his strong right arm. He subdued mighty Egypt through even mightier signs and wonders. He led his people out of bondage. He shepherded them through the wilderness and into a land for their own possession. And all along the way, for 40 long years of unbelief and grumbling, he fed them in the wilderness with the miraculous manna that came from heaven. And John tells us that it's during that season when they were thinking and wondering and, and pondering all these things that, that God's deliverance came again. Jesus fed a multitude in the wilderness. He did it with a, a few small loaves and fishes. He broke those pieces and he, and he made food. He, he fed more than 5,000 people with basketfuls left over. He performed a miracle so amazing that some people began to wonder if God was coming down to deliver his people all over again. Verse 14 says that when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They meant the second prophet, the Moses-like leader from Deuteronomy, the one who was to come and shepherd God's people into paths of righteousness and peace and, by the way, victory forevermore. Some people thought he must be this new leader. He must be the Messiah. So verse 15 says, some people got so excited they tried to come by force and take him and make him their king. Now, Jesus escaped their political ambitions for his ministry. And then after a midnight stroll across the Sea of Galilee, our passage picked up with people looking for Jesus. Except when they found him, they were told that they were looking for the wrong thing. Verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. It's a curious statement. Verse 14 says they saw the sign. Verse 26 says they didn't see. At least they didn't really see. They, they saw the sign, but they didn't really see where the sign was pointing. They witnessed Jesus' miracle, but they didn't understand the meaning. They were like a, a troop of chimpanzees watching the Food Network. They encountered something that looked delicious and their mouths are watering, but they don't really have the categories to contain it. They experienced his power. They tasted his goodness. They swallowed food that sharpened their appetites for greater earthly blessings, but it did not whet their appetite for him. They came to him not because they believed who he was, but because they wanted what he could give them, which was more of the good stuff that this world has to offer. And so Jesus had to tell them, I'm not like the other prophets you've encountered. 
I'm not like the other deliverers and the providers that you have known. Verse 33, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's telling us that it's a divine intrusion. It is a glorious interruption into the normal course of human life and death, and life and death, forever and anon, world without end. He steps into that. Jesus says he is the gift of God himself, and he has come down from heaven to give life to earthly creatures. He is the shining ray of heavenly light by which we can see what the Lord of glory is really like in a person. He is the living bread that came down from heaven. In my preparation this week, I struggled with how to, how to describe what Jesus is saying about himself. How to proclaim it to you as you gather together to hear. Not because Jesus' words are ambiguous. Not because this is a new or difficult concept on a Christmas morning. I struggled with knowing how to put this because there is nothing like it in all the universe. There is no parallel. There is no metaphor. There is no catchy canned illustration that can summarize and convey to us exactly what Jesus is saying about himself. He's not claiming to be like one of these shape-shifting demigods that all the pagan nations around him used to believe in. He's not telling us to imagine him like some fairy tale king who puts on a hooded cloak and suddenly he can travel about his peasants incognito. There's nothing else like this. But actually, all month long, we've been confessing together exactly what Jesus is teaching us about himself. Westminster Confession, uh, sorry, the larger catechism, Westminster Larger Catechism, answer 36. It's in your bulletin. It says the only mediator of the covenant of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ who, being the eternal Son of God, of one substance and equal with the Father, in the fullness of time became man and so was and continues to be. You notice that? This is not a temporary vacation to see the sights on earth. He was and continues to be God and man in two entire distinct natures and one person forever. This was not some outward illusion or some half-hearted analogy. This was the literal truth. The God whose existence is independent of creation has stepped into his own creation. The universe that he made. J.I. Packer writes that there is nothing in fiction so fantastic as the truth of the Incarnation. He says, God became a man, the divine Son became a Jew, the Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do anything other than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, and he says, the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. It's true. It's staggering, on the border of unbelievable. So unbelievable that when Jesus revealed that he's the one who came down out of heaven, the people he was talking to didn't believe him. They grumbled. Verse 42 says, they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? Don't we know his parents? 
His mother and his father, we know them, we've seen them. How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? We know where he's from. They thought they knew how it worked. Every person comes into the world the same way that every other person has always come into the world. Every man has a mother and a father. Everybody's story begins with a family. Therefore, because Jesus was born of a woman, he can't possibly have come down out of heaven. So despite his claims, he must merely be a man like all the rest of us, they thought. Well, today, the skeptics might use more sophisticated measures. They, they, I don't know, might look up Jesus' birth certificate somewhere. They might uh, swab a Q-tip on the inside of his cheek and make him take a DNA test. They might run his genome and make sure that he's actually human and say, see, there you go. But judging by all the normal human standards, the skeptics today can ever, only ever come to the same position as the people who knew his relatives back then. Because Jesus is telling us something that must be believed in order to be understood. He is God incarnate. He is the living bread who gives life to the world. He is the one who has come down out of heaven. So John chapter 6 reveals the message of Christmas. It tells us where Jesus came from. It also tells us what he came to do. Here's another truth in crystal clear language in this passage. Jesus has come from heaven to earth on a mission to fulfill the will of the God who sent him, his Father, to the very final detail. Take a look at, take a look at verse 38. Beginning to read there. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So why is it that Jesus has come into the world, down out of heaven, to take on flesh? He came to fulfill a divine purpose. He came to give eternal life to everyone who has been given to him by the Father. To steal a phrase from Alistair Begg, he came to give his people life that is really life. Not life that's squeezed and, and pressed by our three score and ten years here in this earthly body. Not life that's, that's a frivolous life. Not just life that, that rolls on from one hobby to the next earthly pursuit until we're left at the end with nothing. He's not talking about an aimless, sort of unfulfilled life where at the end of your days you sit on your hospital bed and you wonder, what in the world was that all about anyway? Jesus came to give us a life, he says, of eternal satisfaction. Life that makes us what we were always meant to be. Life that fills our deepest soul longings. Verse 35, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst, he says. He did it because that's the will of his Father that he might lose nothing, that he would raise it up on the last day, Jesus came to earth to give his people eternal life. Now you're probably aware that eternal life, that's one of those churchy phrases. 
That's one of those things that we throw around sometimes without really knowing everything that it means. And it's okay, pastors do it too. Uh, we take that phrase and we put it on our tracks. We share it with our friends. We, we tell them, have you had eternal life yet? Have you received eternal life? And if ever they look at us and they say, what do you mean do you have eternal life? What do you mean by that? We say, well, it means that when you die, you go to heaven. You've got life now, but that life's not enough. That life's going to run out. You need life then, too. You need eternal life. And that's a start, actually. It doesn't quite get to all of it, but it's a start. Of course, eternal life does mean that we go to live with Jesus after we die. Eternal life does mean resurrection life. It means that these mortal bodies will be clothed in immortality. It means that, that all those who believe in Jesus at the last day, at the day of resurrection, we will be raised to a real and physical lasting existence, just like Jesus was raised to a real and physical lasting existence. It does mean that, but it means more than that. This is a foundational concept in John's Gospel. The language of eternal life shows up in various important places throughout the story, and it shows up as a kind of summary of all of the heavenly gifts that we receive through faith in Jesus Christ. The very first time this phrase shows up in the Gospel is in chapter 3. That famous conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus by night. Uh, this teacher comes to this great prophet uh, and he asks him about the kingdom of God. And there Jesus tells him that in order to see the kingdom of God, a man must be born again, he says. Not enough to receive life by our parents. We also have to receive life by the Spirit. We have to have a new life. We need an inward, spiritual, eternal life. And then he told Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 15, that the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here's the first thing we find about eternal life in the Gospel of John, that it's something we have now. It's something we receive by the Spirit. It's something that changes who we are in the very act of believing in his Son. God's people become new creatures. They are newborn all over again. They receive the gift of eternal life, and it begins now. In chapter 5, we get another look at eternal life. Turn back with me to chapter 5, verse 24. Just a page. Chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And then he explains what he means. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So here's our second data point. Eternal life is something we receive now through the Spirit, and eternal life is something that moves us into a new spiritual status. Out of judgment and into life no longer condemned to die in our sin, but freed from the judgment of God through Jesus Christ. In fact, when we start talking about living with Jesus after we die, when we start talking about resurrection life, the promise beyond this earthly existence, it is this spiritual change of status that makes all the difference in our eternal destination. And so if you look down further, verse 29 says there's a day coming when everyone will hear the voice of the Son of God, and everyone will come out of their tombs in the last day. 
And then it says those who have done well will come out to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil will emerge to the resurrection of judgment. And we focus there on what we do. Do we do well or do we do evil? But Jesus is just repeating the same categories he's given us. You can either be in judgment or you can be in life. The, the question and the end day, the, the last day of resurrection will be, do you have eternal life? Have you moved from judgment to salvation? Have you been born again by the Holy Spirit? One more important mention of eternal life, and that's in Jesus' high priestly prayer in chapter 17. There Jesus is sitting in the upper room. He's surrounded by his friends, the disciples, minus Judas. He's already left. And Jesus begins to pray for his friends. He even goes on to pray for everyone who will believe in the gospel through the message that they will proclaim into the world. John chapter 17, verses 2 and 3. Jesus prayed, Father, you have given the Son authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him, and this is eternal life, he says. This is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There's our third description. Eternal life is something we receive now from the Spirit. Eternal life is something that moves us out of judgment and into the life of God. And eternal, eternal life, excuse me, is conveyed to us through a relationship with God the Father. This is eternal life, says Jesus, that they know you. Eternal life is fellowship with the Father through the Son whom he has sent. It is the blessing of knowing the incomprehensible God. It is communion with the Holy One who is separated from sinners. Eternal life is the present possession of the children of God, those who have been born of the Spirit, raised out of sin's shadow, and transferred out of judgment and into friendship with the Father. Augustine of Hippo put it this way. He said, God became a man for this purpose. Since you, a human being, could not reach God, but you can reach other human beings, you might now reach God through a man. So why did Jesus come from heaven into earth? Why did he take on flesh? So that we might know him. So that we might know the Father through him. So that by knowing him, we might have eternal life. So that we might be his forever. One more thought before we move on to our, our final point, and that is to say that the comfort that we find in this passage cannot be divorced from the doctrine of predestination. I know that's not what we want to hear Christmas Eve. I realize that not everybody loves this doctrine of predestination. Some people dislike it very much. They think it's theology that ought to come with a trigger warning. Who would want to talk about predestination on December 24th? But, well, Jesus... You notice, as soon as he starts talking about salvation, as soon as he starts talking about those who believe in him, he goes exactly to that doctrine of predestination. God's sovereign choice over those who will come to him, that's where he goes. He says he's come to complete the desire, the will of him who sent him. He has descended into our humanity to raise every last one of those who will come and believe in him. And yet here he is in this passage. In the face of people, verse 35 says, who have seen him and have not believed. 
Their eyes have beheld the empirical proof of his supernatural power. They have literally tasted the blessings of what he can give them. They have heard the gospel preached through the truth himself. And they don't believe a word of it. That's not the way that we like to think that it ought to work. Man and his natural faculties, right? Man and his intellectual prowess, the one who can search out all things, who, who figures out logic and, and physics, man who can, can plumb the depths of all the knowledge and, and, and artificial intelligence is only barely catching up and it still is a poor representation. All of these intellectual gifts we have, we ought to be able to figure this out for ourselves, right? That's the way we think it ought to work. We tend to think that if only people could see who Jesus really is, well, then, of course, they would want to believe in him. We tend to think that if, if only we could explain the gospel just a little bit better to our unsaved friends, well, then that would be the ticket to them believing. So maybe what we need is just better proofs. Maybe we need stronger arguments. Maybe we need stronger, uh, sharper apologetics. As though we could convince the world through human words that Jesus is the God who has come down from heaven to give eternal life to those who believe him. We tend to think that we can do it. Or at the very least, we're prone to forgetting that we can't do it. But you notice that Jesus has none of those hang-ups. He said it in two ways. He said it negatively and he said it positively. Verse 37. Positively. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's a positive statement. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is God's sovereign choice. And it's the greatest news that we could hear on Christmas Eve. Because it means that the Father is able to draw sinners to Christ who would never come of their own initiative. Not if they saw a thousand miracles a day for the rest of their life. Not if they listened to all the greatest sermons that have ever been preached. Not if they had the best theology and the strongest proofs right at their fingertips. Sinners who would never in a million years come of their own initiative. God the Father is able to draw to Jesus. He's able to do what sinners can't do for themselves because God is able to work on the level of our desires to change what we want, to show us that what we're thirsting for, what we're hungering after really is Jesus all along. Notice verse 44 says it's the Father who draws his people to Christ. It doesn't say that he forces them. He doesn't cajole them and harangue them. He doesn't play 15 choruses of just as I am until the social pressure in that last row gets too big to bear it because you know everybody else has already made a commitment and they're all looking at you and you better get up and come down pretty soon and sign that commitment card. That's not how he does it. It says that he draws them. Sometimes he draws them all at once. Sometimes he does it little by little. Sometimes he makes the gospel seem intriguing. He makes Jesus appear attractive. Hosea says he draws his people with cords of love, with bands of kindness. 
He sprinkles the salt of his word into the hearts of his chosen people so that they would begin to thirst after the right thing, so that they would find that Jesus is the only one who can quench that thirst that they've got. And some of you, praise God, are living proof of that. You know what it's like to live a large portion of your life, maybe all of your adult life, maybe not antagonistic to the faith, but just not really feeling like you needed any of it. And then you know what it's like to feel what Wesley said, to have your heart strangely warmed, changed by the Father, when you couldn't change it yourself. Oh, Jesus came down to give life to his people, and it's the Father who makes sure that his work is successful. He draws sinners to Jesus. He gives them hearts to desire him. He does it perfectly, always perfectly. He does it so that not a single one of his children can ever be lost. This leads us to the last Christmas truth in this passage. John chapter 6 tells us where Jesus came from, tells us what he came to do. He came down to heaven to give life to his people. And John 6 also tells us how that is possible. Verse 51 contains all three of these ideas. First, I am the living bread who came down from heaven. Second, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Third, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Think about the people Jesus was talking to. Later in the chapter, we find that this took place in the synagogue, religious leaders all around Jesus. You think about this, uh, the way that this conversation went, and it's almost embarrassing that Jesus had to wait this long in the conversation to tell them what was really happening, to answer that request they made earlier. What did they say? Verse 34, give us this bread. Jesus said, I'm the, the bread that comes down out of heaven. They said, well, give it to us. If you can do that, open the storehouses already. Let's get this thing going. Let's fix our economy. Let, let's cure world hunger. Let's get people hooked on this, this new diet craze before somebody else steals the marketing. Living bread, come and get it. Jesus told them about living bread that gives life to the world, and they thought he was talking about something that could be commoditized. It was the same misunderstanding he encountered before. John chapter 4, Jesus met a woman beside a well in Samaria. And he said, I can give you water that will well up into a spring of eternal life within you. And she said, boy, wouldn't that be nice. I hate coming out here. Every day. It's hot and the jugs are heavy, she said. John chapter 4, verse 14. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. It was a misunderstanding, and it took a very long, personally painful discussion until they could finally get to the heart of the matter, where Jesus could say, you know, more than a right husband, more than indoor plumbing, what you need is the Savior. You need the Messiah who's coming into the world, and it's not until verse 26 of that chapter that Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. So it is here. We've got this meandering conversation. We've got a little bit of grumbling along the way. And it's not until verse 51 that Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. He's been saying it all along. 
He's been telling them all along, and they still don't get it. So verse 51, he strips away all of the veneer, anything that might be hiding, and he gives it to them in the most visceral description possible. The fact that what they need is not some separate commodity. They need Jesus to give us himself. And so he doesn't say that he came to give his body. It doesn't say that he came to surrender his life. It says, the, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That's the message of Christmas, isn't it? The incarnation. The enfleshment. Right? The God who is before all worlds stoops down to take upon himself an entire human nature. Bones and sinew and muscle and blood. He took on mother and father and people and place. And more than that, he stooped down to take on flesh. He took on a body so that he could give that body as a sacrifice to the Father. So J.C. Ryle says when Jesus uses the words, my flesh, he means my sacrifice. Ryle says it's not merely his human nature, not just his incarnation that feeds souls. It is his death as our substitute bearing our sins and carrying our transgressions. Because that was the bargain, that was the covenant from before the worlds began. Humanity would sin in their fleshly bodies. They would take and they would eat and they would break faith with the God who made them for fellowship with himself. They would bring upon themselves and upon this earthly existence the curse of the law against sinners. Their own souls would die. Their bodies would follow after. Creation would work backward upon itself. Death and disease and warfare would enter in, and babies would die in the womb, and old age would be slow and painful, and cancer would do its terrible work. Romans chapter 4, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Therefore, the only remedy could be to send the Son in a body. To send the Lord of glory in human flesh. Which means that Christmas was always a preparation for Easter. And the manger was the first earthly step toward Calvary. And Jesus was telling them that what they needed most of all was not to fill their bellies with bread that would just leave them hungrier than they started. What they needed was to believe that he is the Lord who gives eternal life to sinners by giving himself for them. Jesus said, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He said, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This may not be the traditional passage you expected on Christmas Eve, but it is the message of Christmas. That the Son of God came down from heaven. That he took on flesh to become a sacrifice for sinners. That he was raised again to unending life. And that now he gives that life to everyone who trusts in him. If you have not believed in him today, perhaps. Perhaps today is the day that the Lord is drawing you as well. And if you have believed in him then the life he gives you is yours forever. It 
can never be taken away. It can never be lost. It can never be stolen. It can never be revoked. Jesus came to do something perfectly, the will of the Father, that he should lose none of all that he's been given. And so on those days when you look at your own faith and you wonder, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I can go through another Christmas season. I don't know if I can make it through uh, the next hurdle in my life. I don't know if I can keep on looking at my sin that I can't get over. I don't know if I can get over that disappointment that keeps racking me. I don't know if I can make it through this loneliness. I don't know what it is. When you look at your life and you say, I don't know if my faith is going to hold on. You remember that Jesus came to give life to his people. And he will not lose a single one of them. Because that is the will of the Father. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Lord and God, we thank you for sending your Son into the world to save sinners. Give us, we pray, life by your Spirit. Raise us up out of the dust of death that we may sit with your people, have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for us, who by faith are being guarded for that last day. Oh, guard us, we pray. Keep us as your own. Leave none of us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.